นโมทัสสะคุณาตัวระหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะคุณาตัวระหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะคุณาตัวระหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะOut of respect for uh, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and on the outside, it looks like you know, usually these things, you know, run very smoothly, and it doesn't look like a big deal. But you can probably imagine, and I'm certainly acutely aware that there is a lot of work goes into preparing an event like this, and people are sometimes thinking. A year, if not two years, in advance in preparation for an occasion like this to happen, and so when it does happen, it's a source of a lot of gladness. and And I must say, I'm, I'm particularly impressed, even with our inclement weather today, how smoothly everything went. And uh, some of you might be wondering why uh, your Marun. Was referring to the event as a as a tort papa and not the usual katin. The this traditional practice for this time of year is going to the monastery and offering a katin, and it's a whether you're in Cambodia or Laos or Thailand or Burma or Sri Lanka, this is a thing you do. You go and offer the katin, and and some monasteries like in Burma, they actually set up weaving looms outside the monastery at. What two o'clock in the morning, Dorminsu, is it? And start actually weaving the cloth and and offering the cloth, and and then the monks take it away and then cut and sew the cloth and make the robe. And there's certainly a very uh, a lot of cooperative effort, which of course is what the Buddha intended. And so maybe people are wondering how come at Hana Monastery they're not having a katina; they're only having a papa this year. So I did want to mention that this is. Um, This is because our monastery in Thailand, Wat Nong Pa Pong, has a particularly uh, strict attitude towards these events. Really, if you read the Vinaya, the monks' rules, and you had a more relaxed attitude, you would see that. Well, if you had four monks living in a monastery and then a whole bunch from Chittorst and Amaravati turned up, you could still have a katin, which is what we have here. But there are Uh, traditions in some of the traditional Buddhist countries, where katina is just a, a fundraising event based on superstitious beliefs, and Wat Pa Pong is very clear, and particularly Ajahn Chah was very clear that that's not something that he wanted to support, and so he took the strictest interpretation about well, you've got to have five monks living there, or you can't have a katina, and so that's why we don't have a katina. And I've actually. 
I confess, I sometimes on the phone to my friend who's in Abbott in Thailand and I, I'm lobbying and I, I say, why don't you go to Wat Pong and get those guys to be a bit more relaxed? And, and uh, he said, oh, well, you know, I'll think about it, which is the Thai way of saying it. He's not going to do anything about it, and <laughs> which I understand. But then when I stop and think about it, because, well, you know, I've done this a few times. I tell you, I've done a bit of lobbying on this because I would like to have a, a katina here. But then I realised, well... Actually, being overly strict is better. I think, you know, given the way our world is, there's, there's so much compromise these days on all sorts of levels, including in monasteries. Uh, all sorts of compromising of the rules and compromising of Dhamma principles and compromising of integrity. And if we look at the chaos of the world, you don't have to look very far to see that the rate of change uh, that the human family are having to tolerate at the moment <clears throat> is unprecedented. This is, this is new, this intensity globally, the rate of change, the rate of, of, uh, in which traditional structures are breaking down, relationships, economics, uh, governance, these things that we've taken for granted for so long uh, a lot of them are actually collapsing. And it's not that it's wrong, it's just, well, if you've got technology and everybody's got a smartphone and they can order their holiday in a few seconds on their smartphone and they can read news on Facebook and they're only getting the news that the algorithms that Facebook or Google want to send them and so you get a whole different sort of a social structure. It's all understandable, but the reality that the human family are having to deal with is intense chaos and confusion. And looking at that, registering that, well, one of the things that could help is if we don't compromise on integrity, actually getting more strict. So I've come around to feeling, well, at our mother monastery in Thailand wants to be super strict about this point, that's all right. I'd rather we go in that direction than being too sloppy, too casual. And this is a, a principle that our teacher, Ajahn Shah, used to emphasize when he was teaching the junior monks. And as probably you would all know, that we've got lots of rules that we have to keep. And so when the young monks are first ordained, they can end up worrying a lot about all the rules, the major rules, the minor rules, and, and even to the point of losing sleep. And on that point, Ajahn Chah says, well, actually, losing sleep over the rules in the beginning is a good idea. That's a good approach. You know, you can be too serious in the beginning and then ease off a little bit. Being too relaxed in the beginning, you're not going to get any stricter. So there's a basic principle there. It's not because we uh, can't be bothered about having a katina. So with the, <clears throat> the risk of being drawn into compromising integrity and hopefully reflecting on that and see, well, you know, when you compromise integrity, that contributes to confusion. And the more confused people are, sadly, regrettably, the more there's a tendency to compromise. And if we reflect, as we, of course we're encouraged to do, the, how do you establish and sustain real well-being? Yeah. A quick, uninspected 
attitude might be, oh, well, just see what you can get away with. You know, like I've heard it said many times, these are, oh, everybody lies. So, well, do we really... Do we really want to put up with that? Do we really want to, you know, go along with that like everybody lies? Is that a standard that we want to go along with? There are some people who don't allow themselves to lie. There are some people who are so committed to integrity that they're not going to buy into that story. And so on occasions like this where we're reflecting on the Buddha's teachings, let's bring to heart and mind the, the recognition that a commitment to real integrity is what leads to increased well-being and the ability to cope with confusion. How do we cope with confusion? How do we cope with the chaos that the world is in? Well, if we're compromising and if we're just reacting to life and trying to get away with whatever we can get away with, that's not contributing to clarity. That's part of the problem, not part of the solution, as we used to say in the 60s. If we want to be part of the solution, then we need to look more deeply and see what is it that really contributes to our own well-being and the well-being of others. Recently there was a fellow staying in the monastery here. I think, I think he's left now. He was a guest here and he was, he was inquiring about uh, joining the monastic community and, and he asked me, fair enough question, he said, um, you know, you've been a monk for whatever over 40 years or something now, and would you say that uh, for most of the time you've been happy? I hesitated and, and thought about it, and I noticed that really, I really, my mind wasn't inclined to think along those lines. Have I been happy? It's like I had to really stop and think, have I been happy all these years? And if I reflect back now and I can remember my first my first rains retreat, my first pansar in Nongkai and living with Lumpur Tate. And, and it was just when the Russian communists had invaded Laos and, and my kuti was on the bank of the Mekong River and you could see the Russian warboats going up and down the river. And, and I wasn't happy about that. I definitely wasn't happy about that. And the language, I couldn't understand what they were talking about. I wasn't happy about that. And somtam, I wasn't happy about that. And those of you that know Somtam, I mean Somtam, Somtam Mahong, they call it. It's basically what it is, is it's green papaya that they then inject with rocket fuel and then you mix it with sticky rice and this is what they live on. And then they add this thing called bala, which I'm not going to tell you how they make that. That's, you just don't want to think about it. I, I wasn't happy about that either. I mean, I, and then... Over the years, I think back to all the monasteries I've lived in and, you know, just as in the time of the Buddha, yeah, it's not the case that monasteries are full of lovely, saintly, cooperative monks and nuns. I mean, some of them, quite frankly, are a real pain. And, you know, it's always been that way. You read the scriptures in the time of the Buddha, there were some some really naughty monks around. And um, they're a pain to live with and stubborn and arrogant and... Devadatta, the Buddha's nephew, this guy who had excellent samadhi, he was a total pain. I mean, then, and when the Buddha spoke to me, he wasn't being cute. The language the Buddha used talking to Devadatta was not sweet, cute language. I mean, he really put him in his place. And, and you can't be happy when you're in a situation like that. And so anyway, it got me to thinking that you know, happiness is not really, it's not a 
reliable metric. It's not, it's not a suitable way of measuring the quality of one's life. If we're not careful, we can be intimidated by it. You know, we can be intimidated thinking, if I've got more happiness, then that's going to be great. Happiness, is that's what we're going for. So reflecting on this, this question that fellow asked me, I, I, I hesitated, and, but then what I didn't hesitate about and what I could say very confidently was that I'm enormously grateful you know, for my life as a monk, enormously grateful. And, you know, I think back at what a life would have been like without Dhamma, or if I wasn't a monk, what would, what would I have been doing? And I just have huge gratitude and gratitude really is worth dwelling on. Gratitude is, I would suggest, a suitable measure for the quality of one's life. But it may not necessarily automatically occur to us. We can be intimidated by happiness. Certainly that's what the media is all about. You'll be more happy if you go to Corfu or... You'll be more happy if you redecorate. If it's uninspected, if we don't use our faculties to consider carefully, then we can be intimidated by the casual concerns of the world. And so this is why the Buddha wants us to really stop and and train our faculties, train our hearts and minds to see beyond the way things merely appear. And if we do that with, for instance, with gratitude, what we start to see is that gratitude is really congruent with contentment. And contentment is really attractive. In fact, when you get a little quiet and a little reflective and if you you exercise a little bit of discipline of attention and and some initial experience of the natural contentment of a peaceful heart and a quiet mind, you see, that's more attractive than happiness. Happiness is busy. Happiness is hot. Happiness stirs the mind up. And contentment is something that's really worth valuing. And then if you get the message, you see that contentment and gratitude work together. Contentment can be viewed contentment can be viewed as like the depths of the ocean. You can have deep contentment, a deep you can access deep contentment, and then on the surface there can be all sorts of chaos, all sorts of confusion. For people in the world who are being thrown around by the waves of confusion and they don't have any sense, any confidence, any trust, any access or even any intuition to the potential for deep contentment, those are the ones who are really suffering. And they might think, as unfortunately most people do, is that what I need is more happiness. And that's a fundamental mistake. So if you do have an appreciation of this and this is what the Buddha wanted us to cultivate, you know, just... It does mean slowing down, letting go of the pursuit of happiness. See, well, isn't the pursuit of happiness everything? Then no. Let's think about this more carefully. And say, what about contentment? Let's, let's look at that. Let's consider this. And if we do start to access deep contentment, then you realize that you can be unhappy or disappointed about the weather, but that doesn't disturb deep contentment. You can be unhappy or disappointed with getting sick. But that doesn't have to disturb deep contentment. You can be unhappy or 
confused or disappointed or upset about the way powerful politicians make decisions, definitely. Just like the Buddha wasn't pleased with Devadatta and let it be known, you know, really let it be known. But did that disturb the Buddha's deep contentment? No. So this is a, this is a really helpful understanding. This is like talking about jitta bhavana, talking about training jitta, training the heart, training consciousness, learning how to read, learning how to see what really works, what really makes a difference. The idea that more happiness is going to really work, is going to really improve the quality of my life, is going to give me more ready access to well-being and well-being that I can share with others, that's a con. That's like sugar. Sugar, I don't know about you, but I, I love sugar. Yeah, I just, I got a, a big jar of 30-plus Manuka honey sitting in my fridge, and I could just eat the whole jar. But I can talk about it because I don't. I've, I've, I've recovered from my sugar addiction, and I feel quite pleased with myself for that. Sugar is really attractive stuff. Evolutionary biologists can probably explain why we're programmed genetically to be attracted to sugar, particularly at early stages of life. But that doesn't mean to say that the readily available sugar that we've got accessible at the moment or the synthetic sugars we've got are really good for us. They're not. It's very clear now. All this sugar, we feel like we, we want to eat it. Well, I do. Yeah, I still want to eat it, but I'm not going to. It feels attractive. That's the apparent reality based on previous memories and deep coding. We're attracted, we're drawn to it. But without wise reflection, without the ability to say no, what in part is called indriya sangmara or sense restraint, without the ability to say no to it, we're intimidated by it. We're intimidated by the way things appear to be. But I want to have sugar. I want to have power. I want to get my own way the whole time. I do, on a certain level. That's the deluded personality just loves being in control the whole time. But does that mean to say that's going to really conduce to well-being? If we get a little reflective, we get a little quiet, then we start to see for ourselves, no, it doesn't. Actually, always following that impulse always following the impulse to gratify desire in the pursuit of happiness is literally a con. Again, just like sugar. It really feels like I'm going to be happy and going to make me better, but it doesn't. And so the Buddha wanted us to exercise this potential that we have to cultivate the heart, to get, the, to get that equation that gratitude and contentment go together. They actually nourish each other. Gratitude and contentment nourish each other. When, if your mind is a little peaceful, a little calm, and you get in touch with a sense of gratitude, then you find that right there with it is contentment. So when you've got gratitude, you've also got contentment. When you've got contentment, you've also got gratitude. It's like a loop, self-perpetuating loop. Now, if you get that equation, then then there'll be an increased willingness to go against the impulses that, to which we feel drawn by. Yeah? And maybe the impulse to say, I'm actually going to make some effort with this cultivation of gratitude. This world that we live in, my goodness, how could this happen? How could this happen? 
so much wealth, so much affluence, so much education, so much transport, so much ease of access to lovely holidays, so much of everything, and yet there's never been such a rate of increasing suicide on the planet. That's statistically proven. The rate of suicide is continually increasing. Think about one every five seconds at the moment, and by 2020 they say one every second somewhere on the planet takes their life out of desperation. And why is this happening? Because there isn't the ability to read clearly and see actuality, to see what's really going on, to see that instead of pursuing happiness, gratification of desire, that we actually dwell on contentment, dwell on gratitude. And so if we see that, we start to see that for ourselves, then we can be inspired and say, well, I'm going to put effort into this. Instead of aiming for increased happiness, I'm going to aim for gratitude. And we can do it. If we're serious about it, you can say, right, okay, for the next year, at the end of the day, every day, I'm going to write in my gratitude log five things. Every day, 365 days, I'm going to... What's 365 times five? I didn't put in. One and two-third thousand. He's amazing with that. I don't know how he does it. But. Anyway, <laughs> every day for 365 days, five things that I feel grateful for. Maybe it's the same five things every day. You know, Maybe if your mind's not very creative, that's all right. But if you're just determined... Write five things down and then it'll register, it'll register. Say, Look at all these things that I've got to be grateful for. Wow, that's amazing. Because we forget, we get so caught up in the confusion, the shared confusion, the shared chaos of the world, we get so speedy that we actually don't stop to contemplate the things that really matter. These are the things that really matter, like contentment really matters. To be able to die feeling contented, that's a life well lived. But how are we going to do that? Well, if we're always caught up in wanting more and criticising and complaining and dissatisfaction, well, that's that's a pity. So how are we going to cultivate a heart of contentment? Well, it means putting effort into it, investing in it. And so if we are interested in that, well, then you sit at the end of the day with your your logbook there and you say five things and so you write them down and and then maybe you have some trouble to start off with because you've got... What is it, RSI, repetitive strain injury from too much keyboard activity? And you're feeling sorry for yourself because you can't do emails anymore? Or, or maybe you've got tennis elbow, if that's what you do. Or these days, you, what's it called, yoga knee from too much meditation. So, you, so you're feeling really sorry for yourself. You know, I've got nothing to feel grateful for. Whoa, is me, poor me. And, well, just look at what's going on in Syria. See, there's a family there. They, don't, they lost their house. They don't have a water supply. They don't have a job. Can't earn a living. Can't feed the children. And think, oh wow, actually, I've got a lot to feel grateful for. I mean, at the very least, I can go to the doctor, and he's paid to listen to me complaining. You know, I can just sit and tell him all my problems, and you know, I'll feel better. I've got a lot to feel grateful for. Once you start, five is easy. I mean, you could come up with fifty every day for 365 days of the year. But, well, the point I'm trying to make is that if we don't invest in such an exercise, then it's very easy to be intimidated by the way things appear to be. Like, I haven't got enough. I need to be more happy. That's the con 
of sensory existence. That's like donuts. Who doesn't like the thought of a donut? I mean, everybody likes the thought of a donut. But are donuts really good for you? I mean, really. Fat, salt, and sugar. You, you want a donut? No. no. Make you puckle. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it makes you fat, basically. Yeah, yeah. But that's the con of that's the con of the sensory world. Now, talking about this is not like saying there's something wrong with the senses. There's nothing wrong with the senses. The fact that sugar tastes sweet is fine. That's just reality. Salt tastes salty. Salt dumb tastes like rocket fuel. <laughs> that's, you know, that's just how it is. But we have the intelligence, we have the potential, we have the, the spiritual faculties that if we exercise them, it means we can, our perceptions rise above just seeing the apparent reality. Seeing the apparent reality is, in Buddhism, the definition of a worldling. That's what a worldling is, is somebody who falls for the way things appear to be. A disciple of the Buddha is somebody who's committed to seeing actuality. Actuality is Dhamma. Say, yes, I want to eat donuts. I do. And you can do that. Go and stand in front of that donuts thing there and just say, I want to eat donuts. And stand there and I want, I want. And they probably think you're crazy, but that's all right. <laughs> really, fully want. You know, we're not talking about like fighting with our desires to eat donuts. You know, that's a very initial understanding of Dhamma. You don't fight with your desires. You acknowledge the nature of desire. I want, I really want. Like that jar of manuka honey in my fridge. I do, I really want to eat it, but I'm not going to eat it. So you want, and you fully want, but you know that you want, and the knowing that you want, the awareness that you want, that's the refuge. That's the refuge in the Buddha. That's why we're Buddhists. And if we go for refuge to the knowing, we go for refuge to the awareness. Going for refuge to the Buddha, well, on an initial level, yes, it means there was this great being who lived in India 2,600 years ago, and we're very, very fortunate that he gave the teachings of the Dhamma and established the Sangha, and that is wonderful, but that Buddha died and when the Buddha died he said I leave you the Dhamma and if you want to see the Buddha you've got to see the Dhamma and what does seeing the Dhamma mean? Seeing the Dhamma means seeing actuality. What does seeing actuality mean? It means when you want to eat donuts then see wanting to eat donuts as wanting or getting caught up in criticising politicians or your neighbours or whatever other reason we might feel critical. I don't like such and such. Now, if we're busy fighting our disliking and indulging in our liking, that, from a Buddhist perspective, is called being a worldling. Cultivating the middle way means seeing liking. I like donuts. Seeing disliking. I dislike noisy neighbours. And seeing that is cultivating the middle way. Seeing that is an expression of our commitment to Dhamma. Seeing that is contributing to harmony in this world that we live in. So the confusion, the chaos, the despair, there's a lot of despair around, a lot of people, they don't have a refuge, they don't have a perspective, they're completely lost. We can see that, but we don't have to become it. And if we want to contribute the clarity, if we want to do something that's like a resolution, like a solution to the problem, then dwelling on gratitude, really, really not just taking this as words, but really think, 
when I notice all that I've got to feel grateful for, it nourishes contentment. And when there's the experience of contentment, you don't have to convince yourself. When you feel contented, you feel grateful. They go together. And it can be a very real and meaningful and relevant contribution to our world. So today, with all these generous offerings that have been made, all the people who prepared and shared and offered food and support for the monastery is a, a lot to be grateful for. So let's not just go away and say, well, that was nice, what's next? Let's really register it and say, well, gratitude is something to really think about. And in fact, I would encourage even writing about it, keep a gratitude manual. So thank you very much today for your attention. Bhayan Dhamma Vata Jata Sadekaran Dhamma Seh